Chapter thirty seven, part one of The Cloister and the Hearth by Charles Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Denham. The culprits were condemned to stand pinioned in the market place for two hours, that should any persons recognize them, or any of them, as guilty of other crimes, they might depose to that effect at the trial. They stood, however, the whole period, and no one advanced anything fresh against them. This was the less remarkable that they were night-birds, vampires who preyed in the dark on weary travellers, mostly strangers. But just as they were being taken down, a fearful scream was heard in the crowd, and a woman pointed at one of them, with eyes almost starting from their sockets, but ere she could speak she fainted away. Then men and women crowded round her, partly to aid her, partly from curiosity. When she began to recover they fell to conjectures. "'Twas at him she pointed. "'Nay, twas at this one.' "'Nay, nay,' said another, "'twas at yon hang-dog with the hair hung round his neck.' All further conjectures were cut short. The poor creature no sooner recovered her senses than she flew at the landlord like a lioness. "'My child! Man! Man! Give me back my child!' And she seized the glossy golden hair that the officers had hung round his neck, and tore it from his neck, and covered it with kisses. Then her poor confused mind clearing, she saw even by this token that her lost girl was dead, and sank suddenly down shrieking and sobbing so over the poor hair that the crowd rushed on the assassin with one savage growl. His life had ended then and speedily, for in those days all carried death at their girdles, but Denis drew his sword directly, and shouting, "'A moi, camarade!' kept the mob at bay. Who lays a finger on him dies. Other archers backed him, and with some difficulty they kept him uninjured, while Denis appealed to those who shouted for his blood. What sort of vengeance is this? Would you be so mad as to rob the wheel and give the vermin an easy death? The mob was kept passive by the archer's steel, rather than by Denis' words, and growled at intervals with flashing eyes. The municipal officers, seeing this, collected round, and with the archers made a guard, and prudently carried the accused back to jail. The mob hooted them and the prisoners indiscriminately. Denis saw the latter safely lodged, then made for the White Hart, where he expected to find Gerard. On the way he saw two girls working at a first-floor window. He saluted them. They smiled. He entered into conversation. Their manners were easy, their complexion high. He invited them to a repast at the White Hart. They objected. He acquiesced in their refusal. They consented. And in this charming society he forgot all about poor Gerard, who meantime was carried off to jail, 
but on the way suddenly stopped, having now somewhat recovered his presence of mind, and demanded to know by whose authority he was arrested. "'By the vice-bailies,' said the constable. "'The vice-bailey? Alas, what have I, a stranger, done to offend a vice-bailey? For this charge of sorcery must be a blind. No sorcerer am I, but a poor true lad, far from his home.' This vague shift disgusted the officer. "'Show him the capias, Jacques,' said he. Jacques held out the writ in both hands about a yard and a half from Gerard's eye, and at the same moment the large constable suddenly pinned him. Both officers were on tenterhooks, lest the prisoner should grab the document, to which they attached a superstitious importance. But the poor prisoner had no such thought. Query whether he would have touched it with the tongs. He just craned out his neck and read it, and to his infinite surprise found the vice-bailiff who had signed the writ was the friendly alderman. He took courage, and assured his captor there was some error, but finding he made no impression, demanded to be taken before the alderman. "'What say you to that, Jacques?' "'Impossible. We have no orders to take him before his worship. Read the writ.' "'Nay, but, good fellows, what harm can it be? I will give you each an écu.' "'Jacques, what say you to that?' "'Hm! I say we have no orders not to take him to his worship. Read the writ.' "'Then say we take him to prison round by his worship.' It was agreed. They got the money, and bade Gerard observe they were doing him a favour. He saw they wanted a little gratitude, as well as much silver. He tried to satisfy this cupidity, but it stuck in his throat. Feigning was not his forte. He entered the alderman's presence with his heart in his mouth, and begged with faltering voice to know what he had done to offend, since he left that very room with Manon and Denis. "'Not that I know of,' said the alderman. On the writ being shown him, he told Gerard he had signed it at daybreak. "'I get old, and my memory faileth me. A discussing of the girl, I quite forgot your own offence, but I remember now. All is well. You are he I committed for sorcery.' "'Stay! Ere you go to jail, you shall hear what your accuser says. Run and fetch him, you!' The man could not find the accuser all at once, so the alderman, getting impatient, told Gerard the main charge was that he had set a dead body a-burning with diabolical fire that flamed but did not consume. And if tis true, young man, I'm sorry for thee, for thou wilt assuredly burn with fire of good pine-logs in the market-place of Neufchasteau. "'Oh, sir, for pity's sake, let me have speech with his reverence the curé.' The alderman advised Gerard against it. The church was harder upon sorcerers than was the corporation. "'But, sir, I am innocent,' said Gerard, 
between snarling and whining. "'Oh, if you think you are innocent, officer, go with him to the curé, but see he scape you not. Innocent, quotha!' They found the curé in his doublet, repairing a wheelbarrow. Gerard told him all, and appealed piteously to him. "'Just for using a little phosphorus in self-defence against cutthroats they are going to hang!' It was lucky for our magician that he had already told his tale in full to the curé, for thus that shrewd personage had hold of the stick at the right end. The corporation held it by the ferrule. His reverence looked exceedingly grave, and said, "'I must question you privately on this untoward business.' He took him into a private room, and bade the officer stand outside and guard the door, and be ready to come if called. The big constable stood outside the door, quaking, and expecting to see the room fly away and leave a stink of brimstone. Instantly they were alone, the curé unlocked his countenance, and was himself again. "'Show me the trick, aunt,' said he, all curiosity. "'I cannot, sir, unless the room be darkened.' The curé speedily closed out the light with a wooden shutter. "'Now, then!' "'But on what shall I put it?' said Gerard. "'Here is no dead face.' "'Twas that made it look so dire.' The curé groped about the room. "'Good, here is an image. "'Tis my patron saint. "'Heaven forbid, that were profanation. "'Pshaw! "'Twill rub off, wilt not?' "'Aye, but it goes against me to take such liberty with a saint,' objected the sorcerer. "'Fiddlestick!' said the divine. "'To be sure, by putting it on his holiness will show your reverence it is no satanic art. Mayhap twas for that I did propose it, said the curé subtly. Thus encouraged, Gerard fired the eyes and nostrils of the image, and made the curé jump, then lighted up the hair in patches, and set the whole face shining like a glow-worm's. By a lady! shouted the curé. "'Tis strange, and small my wonder, that they took you for a magician, seeing a dead face thus fired. Now come thy ways with me.' He put on his grey gown and great hat, and in a few minutes they found themselves in presence of the alderman. By his side, poisoning his mind, stood the accuser. A singular figure, in red hose and red shoes, a black gown with blue bands, and a cocked hat. After saluting the alderman, the curé turned to this personage, and said good-humouredly, "'So, Mongy, at thy work again, babbling away honest men's lives?' "'Come, your worship, this is the old tale. Two of a trade can ne'er agree. Here is Mongy, who professes sorcery.' and would sell himself to Satan to-night, but that Satan is not so weak as to buy what he can have gratis, this Mangy, who would be a sorcerer, but is only a quacksalver, accuses of magic, a true lad, who did but use in self-defence, 
a secret of chemistry well known to me and all churchmen. "'But he is no churchman to dabble in such mysteries,' objected the alderman. "'He is more churchman than layman, being convent-bred and in the lesser orders,' said the ready curé. "'Therefore, sorcerer, withdraw thy plaint without more words.' "'That I will not, your reverence,' replied Mongy stoutly. "'A sorcerer I am, but a white one, not a black one. "'I make no pact with Satan, but on the contrary still battle him "'with lawful and necessary arts. "'I ne'er profane the sacraments, as do the black sorcerers, "'nor turn myself into a cat and go sucking infants' blood, "'nor e'en their breath, nor set dead men afire.' but I tell the peasants when their cattle and their hens are possessed, and at what time of the moon to plant rye, and what days in each month are lucky for wooing of women and selling of bullocks, and so forth. Above all, it is my art and my trade to detect the black magicians, as I did that whole tribe of them who were burnt a doll but last year. Ay, Mongy, and what is the upshot of that famous fire thy tongue did kindle? Why, their ashes were cast to the wind. Aye, but the true end of thy comedy is this. The Parliament of Dijon hath since sifted the matter, and found they were no sorcerers but good and peaceful citizens, and but last week did order masses to be said for their souls— and expiatory farces and mysteries to be played for them in seven towns of Burgundy, all which will not of those cinders make men and women again. Now tis our custom in this land, when we have slain the innocent by hearkening false knaves like thee, not to blame our credulous ears, but the false tongue that gulled them. Therefore bethink thee that, at a word from me to my Lord Bishop, Thou wilt smell burning pine nearer than e'er knave smelt it and lived, and wilt travel on a smoky cloud to him whose heart thou bearest. For the word devil, in the Latin, it meaneth false accuser, and whose livery thou wearest. And the curé pointed at Mangy with his staff. That is true, Ifegs, said the alderman, for red and black— be the foul fiendies colours by this time the white sorcerer's cheek was as colourless as his dress was fiery indeed the contrast amounted to pictorial he stammered out i i, I respect holy church and her will he shall fire the churchyard and all in it for me i do withdraw the plaint then withdraw thyself said the vice-bailiff. The moment he was gone, the curé took the conversational tone, and told the alderman courteously that the accused had received the chemical substance from Holy Church, and had restored it her, by giving it all to him. "'Then tis in good hands,' was the reply. "'Young man, you are free. Let me have your reverence's prayers.' "'Doubt it not,' "'Ha! Vice-Bailey, the town owes me four silver francs this three months and more. "'They shall be paid, curé, I ere the week be out.' On this good understanding, 
church and state parted. As soon as he was in the street, Gerard caught the priest's hand and kissed it. "'Oh, sir, oh, your reverence, you have saved me from the fiery stake. What can I say? What do what?' "'Naught, foolish lad. Bounty rewards itself. Natheless, huh, I wish I hadn't done without leasing. It ill becomes my function to utter falsehoods.' "'Falsehood, sir?' Gerard was mystified. "'Didst not hear me say thou hadst given me that same phosphorus? "'Twill cost me a fortnight's penance, that light word.' "'The curé sighed, and his eye twinkled cunningly. "'Nay, nay!' cried Gerard eagerly. "'Now, heaven forbid, that was no falsehood, father. "'Well you knew the phosphorus was yours, is yours.' and he thrust the bottle into the curé's hand. "'But, alas, tis too poor a gift. Will you not take from my purse somewhat for holy church?' And now he held out his purse with glistening eyes. "'Nay,' said the other brusquely, and put his hands quickly behind him. "'Not a doit. Fie, fie! Art pauper et exul. Come thou rather each day at noon, and take thy diet with me.' for my heart warms to thee and he went off very abruptly with his hands behind him they itched but they itched in vain where there's a heart there's a rubicon gerard went hastily to the inn to relieve denis of the anxiety so long and mysterious an absence must have caused him he found him seated at his ease playing dice with two young ladies, whose manners were unreserved, and complexion high. Gerard was hurt. "'N'oubliez point la jeune ton, said he, colouring up. "'What of her?' said Denis, gaily rattling the dice. She said, "'Le peu que sont les femmes.' "'Oh, did she? And what say you to that, mesdemoiselles?' We say that none run women down, but such as are too old, or too ill-favoured, or too witless to please them. Witless, quotha! Wise men have not folly enough to please them, nor madness enough to desire to please them, said Gerard loftily. But tis to my comrade I speak, not to you, you brazen toads, that make so free with a man at first sight. "'Reach away, comrade, fling a byword or two at our heads. "'No, girls, that he is a very Solomon for bywords. "'Methinks he was brought up by hand on him.' "'Be thy friendship a byword,' retorted Gerard, "'the friendship that melts to naught at sight of a farthingale.' "'Malheureux!' cried Denis. "'I speak but pellets, and thou answerest daggers.' "'Would I could,' was the reply. "'Adieu.' "'What a little savage!' said one of the girls. Gerard opened the door, and put in his head. "'I have thought of a by-word,' said he spitefully. "'Qui honte femme aidée, il mourra en pauvreté.' "'There!' And having delivered this thunderbolt of antique wisdom— he slammed the door viciously 
ere any of them could retort. And now, being somewhat exhausted by his anxieties, he went to the bar for a morsel of bread and a cup of wine. The landlord would sell nothing less than a pint bottle. Well, then, he would have a bottle, but when he came to compare the contents of the bottle with its size, great was the discrepancy. On this he examined the bottle keenly, and found that the glass was thin where the bottle tapered, but towards the bottom unnaturally thick. He pointed this out at once. The landlord answered superciliously that he did not make bottles, and was nowise accountable for their shape. "'That we will see presently,' said Gerard. "'I will take this thy pint to the vice-bailiff.' "'Nay, nay, for heaven's sake!' cried the landlord, changing his tone at once. "'I love to content my customers. If by chance this pint be short, we will charge it and its fellow three sous instead of two sous each.' "'So be it. But much I admire that you, the host of so fair an inn, should practice thus. The wine, too, smacketh strongly of spring-water.' "'Young sir,' said the landlord, "'we cut no travellers' throats at this inn as they do at most. However, you know all about that. The white heart is no lion, nor bear. Whatever masterful robbery is done here is done upon the poor host.' How, then, could he live at all if he dealt not a little crooked with the few who pay? Gerard objected to this system. Root and branch! Honest trade was small profits, quick returns, and neither to cheat nor be cheated. The landlord sighed at this picture. So might one keep an inn in heaven, but not in Burgundy. When foot-soldiers going to the wars are quartered on me, how can I but lose by their custom? Two sous per day is their pay, and they eat two sous worth and drink into the bargain. The pardoners are my good friends, but palmers and pilgrims, what think you I gain by them? Marry a loss. Minstrels and jongleurs draw custom, and so claim to pay no score except for liquor. By the secular monks I neither gain nor lose, but the black and grey friars have made vow of poverty, but not of famine. Eat like wolves, and give the poor host naught but their prayers, and mayhap not them. How can ye tell? In my father's day we had the weddings, but now the great gentry let their houses and their plates, their mugs and their spoons, to any honest couple that want to wed, and thither the very mechanics go with their brides and bridal train. They come not to us. Indeed, we could not find seats and vessels for such a crowd as eat and drink and dance the week out at the homeliest wedding now. In my father's day the great gentry sold wine by the barrel only, but now they have leave to cry it and sell it by the galloping in the very market-place. How can we vie with them? They grow it, we buy it of the grower, the coroner's quests we have still, and these would bring goodly profit, but the meat is I gone ere the mouths be full. You should make better provision, suggested his hearer. The law will not let us. We are forbidden to go into the market for the first hour, so when we arrive the burghers have bought all but the refuse.' 
Besides, the law forbids us to buy more than three bushels of meal at a time, yet market-day comes but once a week. As for the butchers, they will not kill for us unless we bribe them. Courage, said Gerard kindly. The shoe pinches every trader somewhere. Aye, but not as it pinches us. Our shoe is trod all a one side as well as pinches us lame. A savoir, if we pay not the merchants we buy meal, meat, and wine of, they can cast us into prison and keep us there till we pay or die. But we cannot cast into prison those who buy those very victuals of us. A traveller's horse we may keep for his debt, but where in heaven's name? In our own stable, eating his head off at our cost? Nay, we may keep the traveller himself, but where? In jail? Nay, in our own good house, and there must we lodge and feed him gratis. And so fling good silver after bad? Merci, no! Let him go with a wanian. Our honestest customers are the thieves. Would to heaven there were more of them. They look not too close into the shape of the canakin, nor into the host's reckoning. With them and with their purses tis lightly come and lightly go. Also they spend freely, not knowing but each carouse may be their last. But the thief-takers, instead of profiting by this fair example, are forever robbing the poor host. When noble or honest travellers descend at our door, come the provost's men pretending to suspect them, and demanding to search them and their papers, to save which offence the host must bleed wine and meat. Then come the excise to examine all your weights and measures. You must stop their mouths with meat and wine. Town excise, royal excise, parliament excise, a swarm of them, and all with a wolf in their stomachs and a sponge in their gullets. Monks, friars, pilgrims, palmers, soldiers, excisemen, provost-marshals and men— and mere bad debtors, how can the white heart butt against all these? Cutting no throats in self-defence, as do your swans and roses and boars' heads and red lions and eagles, your moons, stars and moors, how can the white heart give a pint of wine for a pint? And everything risen so? Why, lad, not a pound of bread I sell, but cost me three good copper deniers, twelve to the sou, and each pint of wine, bought by the ton, cost me four deniers, every sack of charcoal two sous, and gone in a day. A pair of partridges five sous. What think you of that? Heard one ever the like? Five sous for two little beasts, all bone and feather. A pair of pigeons, thirty deniers. Tis ruination! For we may not raise our pricing with the market— Oh, no, I tell thee, the shoe is trod all a one side, as well as pinches the water into our een. We may charge naught for mustard, pepper, salt, or firewood. Think you we get them for naught? Candle, it is a sou the pound. Salt, five sous the stone. Pepper, four sous the pound. Mustard, twenty deniers the pint. And raw meat, dwindleth it on the spit with no cost to me but loss of weight? Why, what think you I pay my cook? But you shall never guess. 
a hundred sous a year, as I am a living sinner. And my waiter, thirty sous, besides his perquisites, he is a handle richer than I am. And then, to be insulted, as well as pillaged. Last Sunday I went to church. It is a place I trouble not often. Didn't the curé lash the hotel-keepers? I grant you, he hit all the trades except the one that is a byword for looseness and pride and sloth, to wit, the clergy. But mind you, he striped the other day he states with a feather, but us hotel-keepers with a neat pizzle. Godless for this, godless for that, and most godless of all for opening our doors during mass. Why, the law forces us to open at all hours to travellers from another town, stopping, halting, or passing. Those be the words. They can fine us before the bailiff if he refuse them, mass or no mass, and say a townsman should creep in with the true travellers, or we to blame. They all vow they are tired wayfarers, and can I ken every face in a great town like this? So if we respect the law, our poor souls ought to suffer, and if we respect it not, our poor lank purses must bleed at two holes, fine and loss of custom. A man speaking of himself in general is a babbling brook, of his wrongs a shining river. Labitur et labitur in omne volubilis evum. So, luckily for my readers, though not for all concerned, this injured orator was arrested in mid-career. Another man burst in upon his wrongs with all the advantage of a recent wrong, a wrong red-hot. It was Denis, cursing and swearing and crying that he was robbed. "'Did those hussies pass this way? Who are they? Where do they bide?' They have ta'en my purse and fifteen golden pieces. Raise the hue and cry, Ah, traitorous as vipers, these inns are all get upon. There now, cried the landlord to Gerard. Gerard implored him to be calm and say how it had befallen. First one went out on some pretense, then after a while the other went to fetch her back, and neither returning, I clapped hand to purse and found it empty. The ungrateful creatures! I was letting them win it in a gallop, but loaded dice were not quick enough. They must claw it all in a lump. Gerard was for going at once to the alderman and setting the officers to find them. Not I, said Denis. I hate the law. No, as it came, so let it go. Gerard would not give it up so. At a hint from the landlord, he forced Denis along with him to the provost-marshal. That dignitary shook his head. "'We have no clue to occasional thieves that work honestly at their needles till some gull comes and tempts them with an easy booty, and then they pluck him.' "'Come away!' cried Denis furiously. I knew what use a bourgeois would be to me at a pinch, and he marched off in a rage. "'They are clear of the town ere this,' said Gerard. "'Speak no more on't if you prize my friendship. I have five pieces with the bailiff, 
and ten I left with Manon, luckily, or these traitresses had feathered their nest with my last plume. What does gape for so? Nay, I do ill to vent my collar on thee. I'll tell thee all. Art wiser than I. What saidst thou at the door? No matter. Well, then, I did offer marriage to that Manon. Gerard was dumbfounded. What? You offered her what? Marriage! Is that such a mighty strange thing to offer a wench? Tis a strange thing to offer to a strange girl in passing. Nay, I am not such a sot as you opine. I saw the corn in all that chaff. I knew I could not get her by fair means, so I was fain to try foul. Mademoiselle, said I, marriage is not one of my habits, but struck by your qualities, I make an exception. Deign to bestow this hand on me. And she bestowed it on thine ear? Not so. On the contrary, she, Arthur, disrespectful young monkey, know that here, not being Holland or any other barbarous state, courtesy begets courtesy. Says she, a colouring like a rose, Soldier, you are too late. He is not a patch on you for looks, but then he has loved me a long time. He? Who? T'other. What other? Why, he that was not too late. Oh, that is the way they all speak, the loves, the she-wolves. Their little minds go in leaps. Think you they marshal their words in order of battle? Their tongues are in too great a hurry. Says she, I love him not. Not to say love him, but he does me, and dearly, and for that reason I'd sooner die than cause him grief, I would. Now I believe she did love him. Who doubts that? Why, she said so, round about, as they always say these things, and with nay for I. Well, one thing led to another, and at last, as she could not give me her hand, she gave me a piece of advice, and that was to leave part of my money with the young mistress. Then, when bad company had cleaned me out, I should have some to travel back with, said she. I said I would better her advice and leave it with her. Her face got red. Says she, think what you do. Chambermaids have an ill name for honesty. Oh, the devil is not so black as he is painted, said I. I'll risk it. And I left fifteen gold pieces with her. Gerard sighed. I wish you may ever see them again. It is wondrous in what esteem you do hold this sex to trust so to the first comer. For my part I know little about them. I never saw but one I could love as well as I love thee. But the ancients must surely know, and they held women cheap. Levius quid femina, said they, which is but la genetance tune in Latin, le peu que sont les femmes. Also, do but see how the greybeards of our own day speak of them, being no longer blinded by desire. This alderman, to wit. O novice of novices, cried Denis, not to have seen why that old fool rails so on the poor things. One day, out of the millions of women he blackens, one did prefer some other man to him. 
for which solitary piece of bad taste and ten to one twas good taste he doth bespatter creation's fairer half thereby proving what le peu que sont les hommes i see women have a shrewd companion in thee said gerard with a smile but the next moment inquired gravely why he had not told him all this before Denis grinned had the girl said i why then i had told thee straight but tis a rule with us soldiers never to publish our defeats tis much if after each check we claim not a victory now that is true said gerard young as i am i have seen this that after every great battle the generals on both sides go to the nearest church and sing each a te deum for the victory methinks a te martem or te balonem or te mercuriem mercury being the god of lies were more fitting passi bet said denis approvingly hast a good eye canst see a steeple by daylight so now tell me how thou hast fared in this town all day come said gerard tis well thou hast asked me for else i had never told thee he then related in full how he had been arrested and by what a providential circumstance he had escaped long imprisonment or speedy conflagration his narrative produced an effect he little expected or desired i am a traitor cried denis i left thee in a strange place to fight thine own battles while i shook the dice with those jades now take thou this sword and pass it through my body forthwith for what in heaven's name inquired gerard for an example roared denis for a warning to all false loons that profess friendship and disgrace it oh very well said gerard yes not a bad notion where will you have it here through my heart that is where other men have a heart but i none or a satanic false one gerard made a motion to run him through and flung his arms round his neck instead i know no way to thy heart but this thou great silly thing denis uttered an exclamation then hugged him warmly and quite overcome by this sudden turn of youthful affection and native grace gulped out in a broken voice railest on women and art like them with thy pretty ways thy mother's milk is in thee still satan would love thee or le bon dieu would kick him out of hell for shaming it give me thy hand give me thy hand may a tremendous oath if i let thee out of my sight till italy and so the staunch friends were more than reconciled after their short tiff end of chapter 37 part 1 recording by tom denham